Well, on behalf of Marcia, my wife and I, we want to wish all of you a happy new year as well. It's great to see you out. And this past year, um, I finished reading a book, a biography, on the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer. It was written by Eric Metaxas. And uh, I have uh, my major in church history, so I was well acquainted with uh, the history of the church. But in reading that book, I was reminded once again why there was a reformation. It's because the church itself had become so corrupt, the leadership of the church, the priests, had departed far from God's word and were now emphasizing tradition and mysticism and their own kinds of rules. And they were very political and even rather immoral, uh, not all, but many in their practices. It was very sad. And Luther saw that as a priest and he longed himself to be in a right relationship with God and he wanted to see God's church thrive. And so he called for the leaders, he called for the people to come back to the scriptures, to come back to what God says we are and what we're to be about. I think last year I mentioned maybe we're in need of a new reformation in this day and age that we're living in right now. Maybe we too have layered the faith, the true faith, with all kinds of ideas and politics and philosophies and preferences. And what we need to do is strip it all away and come back and ask ourselves, God, what is it you want me to be? What is, really, what is the church? What is Christianity all about? Because it's very confusing in our world today. Uh, we've confused it as Christians, and certainly the secular culture has confused it as well. So that's how we're going to start out the year. And then we're going to do a series on how the cross changes us leading up to Easter. Then we're going to do a series on the Song of Solomon. I don't know if you ever heard one on that before, but on intimacy and personal relationships as God speaks to that very vividly in that, past, in that uh, book. And then we're going to slough in the summer. We're going to take it easy and go through the book of Revelation together. So uh, that's what's coming up. But let's get started, and I want to, I want to start by, by um, asking what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, authentic follower of Jesus? And if I had to select a verse in the Bible, it would be the verse that is uh, found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, that says, come, Jesus said, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Let's read it aloud together. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to drop your nets? And what does it mean to fish for people? And to answer that question, I want us to look at the same verse, but in a different gospel with a different context, a little different, uh, more details than Matthew gives us. So turn with me to Mark chapter one, all right? And I always want you to have your Bible. I don't want us to become monitor dependent, okay? As the scriptures are important so you can go home and wrestle it. So wrestle with it. So grab those. If you're joining us online, I encourage you to get the word of God out as well. And a big welcome to any of our global partners who are joining us as well. So Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, he insisted and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called to them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him, followed Jesus. You know, right away, Jesus confronts us with the fact that his church, his 
gathered ones are not supposed to be a volunteer organization, which sounds really odd because in the church, we so depend on volunteers and we talk about volunteerism. But that's not how Jesus puts his disciples together. He never takes volunteers. It's always a choosing. John 15, 16, he says to them, you did not choose me, I chose you. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4, that God loved us and chose us. And it's really important for us to understand that because if I have this mindset that I chose him, that I found him, what inevitably happens psychologically in us is we think the power rests with us then. You know, if I, if I chose him, then I can unchoose him. It's like, is it Facebook friend and unfriend, right? And, and that power doesn't belong to us. And I don't choose Jesus because he pleases me or because he meets my needs. Because if I take that mindset, then what kind of, you know, I tend to fashion Jesus to, to kind of fit the Jesus I want. No, instead Jesus says, I choose you. And here's the criteria upon which I choose you. And if you're going to be my follower, you have to live by this criteria. It's very demanding when you think about his calling on our life. And I think just that in itself could spark a new reformation. For us to humble ourselves and realize, God doesn't serve me, I serve him. And it's not what I want, it's what he wants, even when what he wants isn't necessarily what I want. He calls the shot. That's why he says, the kingdom has come near. Now, if the kingdom of God has come near, the question is, has come near to what? And the answer to the question is, has come near to my kingdom and your kingdom? Because we are all kings and queens. We all have our little realm. My question is, where is your realm? And the answer to that, I'm going to tell you where your realm is right now. If you take your right hand, place it on your chest like you do in the Pledge of Allegiance, that's where your realm is, your heart. Not your physical heart, but that spiritual aspect of your life, your, your soul. The Bible tells us that when God first created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he said, I am the king, I am the creator, but I want you to manage this creation for me. But when it comes to right and wrong, good and evil, I'm God, I'll control that. Use your freedom to obey me. Don't take the fruit that I forbid from you for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which simply meant, let me decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. We know that Adam and Eve listened to the lie of Satan. They took what didn't belong to them. Why? Because they were convinced that they wanted to be God. They were convinced that they wanted to rule their own realm. And guess what? We all come with that nature. How many of you have children? All right? If you've had or have children or work with children, you know they come packaged, hardwired, from the moment they get out of the womb and even in the womb, wanting to be in control. Would you agree with me? They would love your child. How many students do we have in the room? Let me see your hands, all of our students. How many, put your hands down. Now let me ask you students, how many of you wish you were in charge of your family? Let me see your hands. Yes, wouldn't it be much better? Huh? It'd be a lot more fun, wouldn't it? Right? Well, that's the way we are. We all want to be in charge of our own lives. The problem is, there's other people around us. So in trying to be in charge of my life, I also want to be in charge of your life. Because we have that selfish nature in us. And that's why the world is the way it is. The world is chaotic. The world is dark. The world is a miserable place, generally speaking. I'm talking about worldliness. It's, it's a miserable place because it's so filled with self. And when you're selfish, you're a miserable person because you're always worrying about what people think about you. How many students worry about what your friends think of you? 
Of course. Did you know your parents do as well? All right? We worry about what people think about us. We worry about getting our way. We worry about threats. We're, we're very, very self-concerned. And so Jesus comes along, and in essence, what he says is, I want you to abdicate the throne. I want you to get off the throne for your good, and I want you to put me on the throne. I want to take over your life. I want to run your life. So right away, the first thing we're confronted with is a disciple of Jesus is somebody who's getting off the throne. Now, I said getting off the throne because we have a tendency to climb back on. Anybody besides me? All right, a rethroner, all right, has made that word up. I want to get back on the throne all the time. And my whole life is about staying off the throne. That's what Paul says, I die daily. I die daily to wanting to run my own life. So a follower of Jesus is like really, really concerned about getting off the throne so that Jesus is able to sit on the throne. How do you do that? He tells us two things. He says, number one, repent and believe. And it's like one coin, two different sides. On the one side is repent. He uses the word metanoia, which means change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about who's going to be in charge. Repent means, God, I, I'm wrong. It's wrong for me to be in charge. I make a mess when I'm in charge. This life belongs to you. I'm going to give it to you. And then believe. Believe in what? He says, believe in the euangelion. Eu means joy. Angelion is message. Believe in the message of joy. What is the message of joy? God loves you. God forgives you. God invites you back in the garden, so to speak. God wants to actually live in your life. Jesus says, that's why I've come. That's why I'll die. That's why I'll be buried. That's why I'll rise again, he says in Corinthians. The essence of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to exchange my life for your life. And all you got to do is trust me, enthrone me in your heart. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But listen, when we talk about salvation, and if you're here from our last series, because I challenged anybody who was a skeptic or, or a non-believer to show up and hear us talk about what it means to be a real Christian, I'm sure you have heard the word salvation. The problem for us as Christians, when we think of salvation, we think of it in terms of that moment when I say, Jesus sit on the throne of my life. And then we think salvation is over. But the truth is salvation continues. It's a process. It's a journey. Yes, I accept Jesus on the throne of my heart. But then Jesus wants to then begin to rule my life. That's part of salvation. It won't be complete till I get to heaven. Because it's a takeover. And we have a tendency to, to fight the takeover. Anybody besides me struggle with that? Yeah. So Jesus says, we go back to the passage of Scripture and this whole concept of the takeover, he says, so come, follow me. Now, if I were to say to Heather, for instance, right now, our junior high pastor, if you're watching online, come, follow me, Heather would have to leave where she's sitting. She'd have to leave something behind in order to come follow me. So when Jesus says, come, follow me, he's asking us to leave something behind. And what he's asking us to leave behind is what we base our identity on. Now, in the ancient world, and today in many traditional cultures, people base their identity on their family. That's why when you go to passages like Luke 9, especially Luke chapter 14, you have people coming to Jesus saying, I want to follow you, but I need to go home and get my father's permission. And Jesus says, listen. Unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you cannot follow me. Now, he doesn't literally mean hate. What he's saying is you can't live under the authority of your family. You have to live under my authority. I'm in charge now. 
Now, in an individualistic culture like we live in today, it's not so much about my family, all right? My identity isn't wired into my family, my heritage, my father, my mother. My identity is wired into my career, it's wired into my skills, my abilities, my grades at school, my friend circle. It's into my body, my health, my physicality, my looks, my success. That's my identity. And what Jesus says is, if you're going to follow me, go get a great big burlap bag, stick all of that in there, tie it closed, and leave it at the foot of the cross, and let's go. Easy, easy to say, hard to do, right? And sometimes it's a daily process of going, man, I picked that up again. Put it in the bag and put it at the cross. I got to leave it there. But to be a follower of Jesus, I must be in pursuit of Jesus being my identity. He's my identity. He's who I am all about. He's my worth. He's my value, which is so free. It's so free when it doesn't matter what you think of me. It only matters what God thinks of me. And do you know it's easier to please God than to please your spouse or your parents or your kids or your friends? Did you know that? They're so exacting. He is a God of grace. That doesn't mean he says, yeah, you can get away with anything you want, but it always starts with grace. He sees us, if we're his followers, as though we are perfect and sinless. You, how many human beings will look at you that way? Human beings tend to look at us and remind us of our flaws. God reminds us of what we can be if we'll trust him, if we'll follow him. So he says, come, come away from that. And then he says, follow me. Well, where are we going? How many of you like to know where somebody's taking you when they say, let's go for a ride? If you're a control freak, you do, right? We all do. I know very few people who say, I don't want to know where we're going, all right? We all kind of want to know where we're, going, where we're going and how we're going to get there, even if we believe the person who says they're going to take us where we're going, we still want to know how it's all going to get mapped out. But the Lord doesn't always tell us where we're going to go geographically, but he does tell us where he's going to take us. And he's going to take us to a dead end, a dead end of ourselves. He's going to take us on a journey, all right? It's never going to be a straight line. He never goes straight. But he's going to take us on a journey, and the journey, in part, is meant to help us shed self. Because we're in this process of becoming more and more like Christ. And I can't become more like Christ as long as I'm hanging on to myself as well. Jesus says, it has to be, it has to be just me. And I'm, I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring you to that place where it's just me in your life. And it won't be complete till you stand in front of me. So my question to you, and it's really a question to me as well, is as a follower of Jesus, have you put him on the throne? And secondly, is, your, is he your source of identity? And are you letting him change you? Are you dying to self? You know, the other day, Marsh and I went on our, our, our Costco trip. And uh, we haven't been for a while. And you know, when you haven't been for a while, it tends to get huge, right? And so we're pushing everything. We get in the car. It was really cold. We got back to the house. And I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to go in and out, in and out, carrying every little item. And they don't give you nice little sacks there, right? Maybe one little box. Everything else is piecemeal, right? So I have a tendency to be one of these people who likes to put everything in my arms and carry it in. Anybody else like that? All right? 
Why make all those journeys? Okay, but the problem is sometimes my hands get so full, something drops out, which normally isn't a problem unless it's glass. Then it's a problem. Now, you all thought I dropped some glass, but I didn't, okay? But I have, all right? A lot of times what happens is we stuff our arms full of all these things we're trying to base our life on. You know who we normally end up dropping out of it? God. And we end up with this, this huge armful of stuff that keeps us worried and up late and anxious and upset with each other. God says, just drop it. And life, life is about God teaching us, sometimes the hard way, because we're really stubborn, to drop all that stuff and let it go. And then he says in the passage of Scripture, he says, and then I will send you out to fish for men, which is a really poor translation of the original. But the, the translators are trying to figure out how you take this Greek awkward sentence or how you take this Greek which is going to sound really awkward in the English language. But literally what Jesus is saying is, come follow me and I will, and the NASB has it right, I will make you, and then, and then the word that's missing there is I will make you become fishermen. Well, if we read that in English, it would sound odd. Follow me, make you become fishermen, Okay. But that's what he's literally saying. Follow me, and the making is a becoming process. I want, to, I want you to help become this fisherman. And the becoming is an ongoing journey. It's a, it's a continual process of change. And fisherman is not just evangelism. It's not just inviting people to follow Jesus. It's much broader than that. But before I get there, let me just camp for a moment on this whole idea of following and of becoming. If I'm becoming something or I'm becoming someone, that means there's change going on in my life. And how many of you find change difficult? It's okay to admit that. It's not easy, is it? I know in my own life, spiritual change sometimes is really hard. Sometimes I feel like I take the proverbial five steps forward with God and wake up the next day and go 10 steps in the opposite direction. So this... uh, uh, time between Christmas and New Year's, Marsha and I went to visit our son and his wife and our two grandkids in Austria where they're missionaries. He's a principal of a middle school and senior and a high school there. My daughter-in-law teaches first grade in the elementary school. And they have over 50 countries represented and almost half the students are not believers. They're coming from atheist, agnostic, and other religious backgrounds. And they get to teach them not only academics, but talk about God and his truth. And amazing things are happening there. But when our family gets together, one of the things we love to do is reminisce about family vacations. Any of you like to do that? Our best, if you ask my kids what's the best memories we have, they'll always say our family vacations. And they'll talk about the, the, the fun things that we did. But invariably, every family vacation seems to start with a problem. Me. Dad. Dad does not start trips out well. And when I was raising my kids in California, they're about junior high age. All three, my youngest was, was in elementary, all right? We would start out in the family minivan. And I, I'm just gonna tell you right now, I don't like minivans, all right? Some of you do, God bless you, my wife loves them. I feel like I'm driving my mother's truck when I'm in a minivan, but that's just a personal thing, all right? No offense. So I, don't, I just, all right, I get in the minivan, and then my wife is a, is a maximum packer, right? Maximize, I mean, she just, I'm a minimalist. All right, take clothes that you can wear four days in a row. It's okay, all right? Just change your underwear inside out a few times. It's all right. 
That's, that's how we should travel. But no, everything has to get packed in the van. That's why I don't like vans. It invites overpacking. And almost the proverbial kitchen sink. So we're finally in the van, right? I've been in ministry. I've been preaching and teaching and counseling. I've been modeling what it means to be a Christ-like follower. I've been a holy man. I'm looking forward to my my two-week vacation. One week in the Sierras and rented cabin we've got. And then the rest with family. And so we get in the van and we get ready to pull out. I can see it in my mind actually still. And the rearview mirror fell off. And I'm like, well, I, you know, it's California. I need to have everything in its right place. So family gets out. I go downtown. I buy the epoxy. I come back. I glue the little holder back on. I wait for it to, you know, to, to cement, which doesn't take too long. I go to put my rear view mirror back in, and it falls out again. And I realize I glued it upside down. I'm not very mechanical, by the way. And, uh, and then I try to get the thing off. Well, I, it's, it's, like it's, it's like permanently sealed the glass. I can't get it off. Now I'm really getting frustrated. It's really hard to be like Jesus right now, all right? Because it's not like I can just pray and say, be off, all right? And it falls off. So I have to now go to my friend who owns his own auto repair shop. And I know when I get there, Joe, that's his name, Joe is going to laugh at me. He's going to make fun of me. He's going to say, why didn't you come here in the first place? You know you can't do anything mechanical. So I show up, he has fun ribbing me, right? He gets this massive crescent wrench, he busts the thing off, puts it back on, puts the mirror back on, I go home, the kids get in the van, Marsha gets in the van, we're running three hours behind, and I'm ticked. And trying to be like Jesus at the same time. <laughs> trying to be a disciple, trying to be the follower, trying to die to self, right? And we're making our way along, we're in the foothills, we're getting up toward the mountains, the trees are tall, it's beautiful, and my kids say we're hungry. My wife says, I think we should pull over. Look at the beautiful wayside, picnic benches, the tall trees. They'll be wonderful. I'm like, I'm a man on a mission right now. We're going to get to our destination, and then everybody can eat. In the meantime, let's all be happy. Let's just go. <laughs> now, my wife's here, so if you don't believe any of this, you can ask her, okay? And we kind of worked this whole thing. In fact, last night we talked about maybe we should have this little thing when I tell stories. I'll give you three flags. Red means he's, not, he's, he's way off here. Got the details disordered. Yellow means be careful, you're going there. And green means go for it. Anyway, uh, so we're on our way, right? And finally, it's like I hear the kids whining. It's like, okay, I'll stop. We stop, we pull off. And I say, where's the picnic meal? And she says, it's in the back of the van. So then I get out and I'm just, now I'm really ticked because I have to take the bikes off. I got to unhinge the, the carrier to the bike. When I do it, I bang my head on the top of it, right? Now I'm getting a little bit more intense. I open the back, I open the back and it could have been a movie, all right? I open the back and everything falls out. I mean the kitchen sink as well. You've got boxes, you've got towels, you've got clothes. The food comes tumbling out. The soccer ball comes tumbling out. The Frisbees come tumbling out. The football comes tumbling out and I lose it. The pastor loses it. And I say some choice words and I launch my foot. And at that moment, if I had been the field goal cooker, uh, cooker, kicker for the Vikings, we would have won many Super Bowls. <laughs> I launch that thing over the trees. And my wife says to the kids, kids, quickly walk toward the woods. <laughs> have you ever had one of those moments? Have you ever just lost it? If you had driven by, you'd have no clue we were a Christian family. You'd have no clue I was a pastor, let alone a believer. I just had a total carnal meltdown. Now, why am I telling you that story about myself? Because it's not the first one, all right? Just like the rest of you, I struggle too. We all struggle sometimes in our spiritual journey. We can be going along really well and bang, it hits. But here's the deal. 
When that happens, you can't give up. You gotta get back in the van and keep moving. You gotta get back on the horse and keep riding because God knows we're imperfect and he knows we're gonna screw up. And what's awesome about God is when, he, is when we screw up, he doesn't give up. He just waits for us to learn our lesson. He waits for us to come to the reality that, oh, I went back on the throne. He waits for us to give that up. He waits for us to get to that place where we just accept him and totally trust him. That's why the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. I'm so thankful. I use up every, every day, I use up as many mercies as he'll give. And I'm glad the next day there's new mercies to meet me. And I'm telling you that because I don't want you to have this idea that being the follower of Jesus is perfection on our part. He's perfect, we're not. He's patient. And he, and he takes us on this journey to not only accomplish his will, but to transform us in the process. And the pain we go through is meant to help us become more like him by showing us our shortcomings so we'll depend on him. And then he says, I'll make you fishers of men. But what is a fisher of men? Tim Keller says that we have to understand the idea of fishing and water. In the ancients, he says the water was chaotic, it was foreboding, it was dark, it was mysterious. They were scared of the water. When you get the book of Revelation, the sea describes the chaos of the world. In essence, I think what Jesus is saying is that he's going to take us into the chaos of this world, ruled by selfishness, and he wants us to let him sit on the throne of our lives so as we enter the darkness, he starts to shine. His uncommon love, his uncommon mercy, forgiveness, kindness, generosity shine brightly in our lives so that like the fish attracted to a lure, people are attracted to us. That's what it means to be fishers and men. It's not knocking on somebody's door that you've never met before and saying, if you had died today, do you know where you would go? It just doesn't work real well in our culture anymore. It means get out of that world and let Jesus live in you. If you start to live unselfishly, people are going to ask you what's different about you, and you can tell them about the message of hope. Let me ask you, who are you attracted more toward, unselfish or selfish people? Who would you rather be around, someone who wants to use you or somebody who likes you just for who you are? They, have, they don't want anything out of you. They don't want anything from you. They just like you. That always feels safe, doesn't it? Those are the kind of people I want to be around. How about you? Those are the good people. Those are the, those are the folks that you feel so comfortable with. Jesus says, that's what you're supposed to be. And in essence, what he says, that's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be this movement of people in the world that are so unselfish that the world is so magnetized to us by our words and by our actions. The world says, I've just never met a group of people like that before. I want to be part of this. But so oftentimes, what happens, we move through the world and we're selfish and we're unkind. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Isn't it interesting that the greatest witness we can be in the world is how we behave toward each other as Christians? If the world sees us loving, forgiving, helping and encouraging and being kind to each other, then that's a community they want to belong to. But so many times what they hear about their church is so sad, right? And they hear really nasty stuff about the church. And where does that nasty stuff about the church come from? Us. Us. When we talk about ourselves, when we talk about each other. That's why I'm saying we need a new reformation. 
We need to get back to the basics of what it means to be a follower and what it means to actually follow Jesus. And be in step with him is very radical, isn't it? This whole idea of giving up everything and only having him, you read about how radical it is in a passage like Luke chapter 14. Let me, uh, let me just read a couple of verses. This, this, now listen to this carefully, okay? See if you agree with this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, verse 26 of Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this we say is not literally hate, but if I'm not, if I'm not the only authority in your life, you can't be my, my disciple. He goes on, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever's not willing to carry out the will I have for their life, if you're, if you're just gonna say no to that, you can't be my disciple. And then down in verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up Everything you have. Wait a minute, that must not have been right. Let me read that again. No, that's right. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Wow. Think of everything you have right now. Can you give it up? Can you, can you live with your hands open as though it's, it could be taken from you at any moment? And you're okay with it. I mean, that's a daily thing, isn't it? Living that way, I something I have to do every day, daily. You cannot be my follower. This is pretty radical, folks. The call to follow Jesus is radical. It's hard, but it's not hard if we're willing to surrender. Are you willing to live radically for Christ? Are you willing to live generously for Christ, unselfishly for Christ? Y'all did a good job Christmas Eve, by the way. Remember we had the Christmas Eve offering to help our refugees in Aqaba and the girls in, at Freeset in Calcutta? No girls sold. You gave $160,000 for the Christmas Eve offering, and I thank you. God bless you for that. Isn't that awesome? Do you know how many lives that's going to change? But Jesus doesn't want us to live radically one weekend a year, one night a year. He just wants that to be the lifestyle. So let's revisit. What is, you know, if we were to boil this all down, what is, what is a disciple? I think we could define it this way. And this is, this is our definition of discipleship that we're going to be camping off the next four weeks and for the rest of our time as a church here on earth. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is actively following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is on mission with Jesus. Now, I want you to say it with me. Ready? A disciple of Jesus is someone who is actively following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is on mission with Jesus. You're going to hear that over and over. We're going to have it tattooed on your eyelids. <laughs> because to me, this is the essence of who we are and what we're about. Now, I want to ask you three questions as we close based on this definition, and based on the passage we looked at, Matthew 4, 19. First question is this. How have you been actively following Jesus this past week? That's a question we need to ask ourselves every day. And all that simply means is, how have you been submitting to his lordship in your life? Every day, I personally, I, you heard my story. Every day, I'm personally challenged 
to submit to his lordship in my life in all kinds of ways. I want to challenge you this week. Here's a challenge. If you're able, if you can't, then do it sitting. But I want to challenge everyone who can this week, every day, to start your day on your knees, in your bedroom, in your shower, in the bathroom, in the, in the hallway, wherever it is, just, just get down on your knees and say, Lord, today, this is your throne. Come sit on your throne. You're in control. Second question, how has Jesus been changing your life over the past week? You know, I, I know most of us hate change, but spiritually you can't hate change. I guess you can try to hate it, but God says you can't follow me if you don't let me change you. Can't stay the way you are. So how's he changing you? How's he changing you in terms of your language? How's he changing you in terms of your habit? How's he changing you in terms of your attitude, your relationships with others? Hopefully somebody could walk up to you at any point and say, how is he changing you? You would talk about what's going on in your life. And the last question is, how have you been on mission with Jesus this week? How are you carrying out his mission toward fellow believers? How are you carrying out his mission toward those who don't know Jesus yet? We're going to be talking about that over the next several weekends as well. Because every day we need to be living by these three questions. These need to be the way that we kind of filter and decide, am I, am I following? Am I following? Am I who he's called me to be? Am I doing what he called me to do? Are we as a church living this out? If we ask the questions about us together as a community. Now, preview for next weekend, we're going to talk about the stages of spiritual growth. The next weekend, privately, won't embarrass anybody, you'll be able to choose which stage you're in. Then you'll see the next stage you need to get to and how to get there. And we're going to talk about how we help others get to those stages as well. So I don't want you to miss this series because to me, it's the beginning of a reformation at Wooddale Church. It's us saying, you know, we want to strip off all the, all the philosophy, all the verbiage, all the wrong understandings and misunderstandings. We want to get back to the core of what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And then hold each other accountable to live that way. I guarantee it will change your life. It'll change our communities, our friendships, our place at work. And it'll invite God to once again walk the earth like Christ did in miraculous form. Because once God's body, once God's people are in alignment with him, he will pour himself through them. My fear is the reason we don't see the work of God in his church today is because we're so out of alignment when it comes to following him. Are you excited? I am. Let's all stand together. Let's pray, and I hope you stay long enough to sing this wonderful song together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us to follow you. Thank you for this demanding yet amazing invitation to let you live in us, oh God, to sit on the throne of our hearts. Lord, we want to move out with you. We are tired of commonplace Christianity, Father. We're tired of the same year, year after year after year. It's the same program in our lives, God, and even in our church. We're hard-pressed to point to the work of God. It could all be chalked up to human effort. Lord, we want you, we want you to show up in rare and powerful form in our lives and our community. God, it starts with the basics. Just obedience, following Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.